Please open your Bibles up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 and 2, Paul begins to conclude this letter and launches into a string of exhortations on pleasing God. And Paul is advocating for a sanctified life, a holy life. We find these words in verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, your holiness. And in verse 7, God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Holiness is a big deal because God is holy. And God's holiness is far above and beyond us. A.W. Tozier, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, wrote, And neither the writer nor the reader of these words is qualified to appreciate the holiness of God. Quite literally... A new channel must be cut through the desert of our minds to allow the sweet waters of truth that will heal our sickness to flow in. We cannot grasp the true meaning of the divine holiness by thinking of someone or something very pure and then raising the concept to the highest degree we're capable of. God's holiness is not simply the best we know, infinitely bettered. He said, we know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. The natural man is blind to it, and he may fear God's power and admire his wisdom, but his holiness, he cannot even imagine. God calls us to be holy because he is holy. In Leviticus 19, verse 2, he says, Speak to all the congregation of Israel. Say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Leviticus 20, verse 7, Consecrate yourselves and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Leviticus 20, 26, you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. Leviticus 21, 8, I, the Lord, who sanctify you, am holy. Exodus 19, 6, you shall be to me a holy nation. And then repeated in 1 Peter 1, 16, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And essentially, God is saying, I am going to make my people holy because I am. I'm going to set you apart. I'm going to reserve you for me. In Isaiah 57, verse 15, it says this, The one high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, says, I dwell in a high and holy place. The Bible, that place is called a sanctuary, a temple, a tabernacle, the holy location where God dwells. To dwell with a holy God in his holy place, you must be holy. In 1 Thessalonians, as well as throughout the entire Bible, 
is describing how people who are alienated from God because of their sin in this broken world, living broken lives, how they can be sanctified in order to come into God's holy presence. We've seen this of the Thessalonians. They're beloved. They're, they're chosen of God. God elected them. They, they turned to God from idols. They, they turned from their wickedness to serve the one true God, to, to have the word of God at work in their lives, to love the brethren and all people. They're being prepped to live in God's presence. Justification starts the process, that immediate point in time declaration when God says you are not guilty, you are forgiven, you are cleansed by the blood of Christ. Anyone who comes to faith in Christ is, is declared right with God through faith in Christ. And God declares that justification, that starts the process. But sanctification continues it. And then glorification will complete it. The holy God preparing a holy people to dwell with him forever. Holiness would be required for all who would dwell with him. If you want to please God, you must pursue holiness. As part of a beloved church that is being changed by the gospel by a holy God and connected in relationship by a holy God and committed to ministry by a holy God, all at the same time living in a world broken by sin, living in lives that have been shattered by sin and navigating life with our sin. That we must pursue a life that pleases the holy God. And it is all the more necessary in this moment. So many say they follow Jesus as Lord, but they do not do what he says. We live in a relationally and theologically thin time of rampant caving to false teaching and the twisting of scripture uh, amid an anything-goes lifestyle and much division and much disunity. So we really need this passage of scripture this morning and especially, really the key that unlocks the meaning of this passage is there's two phrases, one in verse one, one in verse two. The kind of phrases we run right on by, read very quickly, don't pause to think about what they really mean. The key to understanding these two verses lies in two phrases. In verse one, it's the phrase, in the Lord Jesus, and in verse two, it's through the Lord Jesus. And this is foundational to everything else that Paul will say in this letter. Begin with me at verse 1. Verse 1 begins, finally. Finally. Finally then, brothers. And what we're going to see in verse 1 is that a sanctified life starts with acknowledging Christ's lordship. Acknowledging Christ's lordship. He begins, finally. What he's doing is beginning the final part of the letter. Yes, at chapter 4, verse 1. Basically, after a very long introduction from chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 3, verse 10, then Paul got to the main point, verses 11 through 13, 
And now he's starting to conclude the letter. And it's going to be a long conclusion. Chapter 4, verse 1, to the end. So consider this the, the beginning of a long conclusion. Consider this like Paul's halftime pep talk. And he is, he is saying finally here, because he has chapters 1 through 3 in, in view, you've had, you have such a great life together in Christ. You, are, you have the word at work in your life. Your faith and your love is stellar. You are suffering for the gospel. And there is progress being made, but there is still more progress to be made. Same is true for every Christian. And so he says, we're, we're going to continue to pray for you. And he says, finally, brothers. That Greek word, adolfoi, it means brothers and sisters. Beloved brethren. He's being very tender as he's going to approach some tender subjects in the verses to come. He's calling them brethren shows not only his confidence in their salvation, but his confidence that they are going to hear and do what he says. He says, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God, just as you are doing, do so more and more. He's asking. It's a gentle urge. It's a gentle, friendly request. But he is also urging. It's an authoritative apostolic plea. It's not a command, but it's a very strong exhortation. Like Romans 12.1, I, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Like he said to the Ephesians, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And he says, as you have received from us, verbally, how you ought to walk and please God, how you ought to live just as you are doing. So far in First Thessalonians, he's praised their faithfulness. He's defended his own motives. He's showed gratitude for their love for the word of God. He has expressed his love for them. Because this was a remarkable church. Filled with people of all ages, but they were young in the faith. And they were quite unlike the churches in Corinth and Galatia that brought Paul sorrow and grief. The Thessalonians were a source of encouragement and, and joy they were uh, the kind of people he wanted to be around and he says as you i want you to do so more and more basically excel still more excel still more the overflow of the love that paul had prayed for and urged them on to is what is in mind but mostly this is relating to other aspects of the christian life to other dimensions of living to follow Christ and please Christ. If they were going to reach the ultimate goal of, of pleasing God with a, a holy life, it was going to necessitate continual progress in sanctification. And just like the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 12, 14, strive for peace with everyone and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord, the holiness. They had turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. The word of God was at work in them. They loved each other deeply and dearly. Now he's going to call them to purity in verses 3 through 8. He's going to call them to a deeper love in verses 9 and 10. And he's going to call them to a, a very strong responsibility in verses 11 and 12. It's going to happen. And so he starts by saying, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus. There's the hinge. This is why it's so important. 
It's about Christ's lordship. The early Christians were a persecuted minority in the Roman Empire. They obeyed the laws unless it caused them to disobey God. They paid their taxes. They prayed for the king. They fulfilled their civic duties. But there was one command that they outright refused. They, they rebelled against this one command. When they were ordered to proclaim, Caesar is Lord. They rebelled. They would only acknowledge Jesus as Lord. And there was a deep meaning to it and one that we are uh, needing to grasp. You compare the meaning of Lord in Scripture with the claims of Roman emperors, it was obvious why early Christians would only refer to Jesus as Lord. The Greek word here is kurios. It's translated Lord in English. In the Septuagint, an ancient Greek Old Testament translation, the covenant name of God, the Hebrew tetragrammaton, Yahweh, is translated with kurios, Lord. Kurios is used for God's covenant name. So for Jews to call someone kurios, Lord, means they viewed them as God. The earliest Christians, most of them were all Jews, and they had they had no difficulty calling Jesus Kurios, Lord. It's used hundreds of times in the New Testament. One of the reasons why I think it's easy for us to just run right past phrases like in the Lord Jesus or through the Lord Jesus because we get so used to it, we, we almost think it's just filler and it's the foundation. The apostles called Jesus Lord because they were acknowledging that he is God, that he is Yahweh. The early church refused to use kurios for Roman Caesars because they would have no other God but the triune God. Rome's emperors claimed to be gods. And having their subjects call them kurios meant they were saying, you need to worship us. Christians could only worship the true kurios, Jesus, God incarnate, Yahweh in the flesh. So when you see this phrase, in the Lord Jesus, it is signifying something very foundational for your life and my life. It means if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, you are under his sovereign rule. This is why Paul would say to the Philippians, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is why he said to the Colossians, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, so, so live your life in him. This is why he said to the Ephesians, don't be foolish, understand what the will of the Lord is. This is why he said to the Colossians, walk in a manner worthy of, of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And if you're acknowledging the lordship of Christ, it will show even in the way you live. Now, I'm one of those people that says uh, when you're going to be around anybody for any length of time or maybe you're just going to meet them, they, they need to know something about Jesus and the gospel. And I'm going to be prone to, to want to to say something about Jesus and the gospel if, if the situation uh, gives me opportunity. And many times we can just take the opportunity. 
But I would say this, if you're a Christian and you've identified yourself as such, then when, when you're around people that know you, they know exactly what you stand for, that they would be able to say, yes, this person lives under the lordship of Jesus Christ. R.C. Sproul uh, recounted a story in his book, The Holiness of God. It was from a long time ago, and, and he, there was a, a leading golfer on the PGA Tour that was invited to play with Gerald Ford, who was then the president of the United States. It was a long time ago. Jack Nicholas and Billy Graham. And afterwards, someone asked him, what was it like to play golf with the president and Billy Graham? And the golfer literally just got lit up and just started uh, spewing out a torrent of, of curse words. He was cussing up a storm. And he disgustedly said this, I don't need Billy Graham stuffing religion down my throat. And the friend says, Wow, what did he say to you? He says he didn't say one word about Jesus or the Bible. Now, he'd heard his words previously. He knew what he stood for, and just his presence made him uncomfortable. That ungodly man saw that Billy Graham was different and that he was set apart for God. Martin Luther said, the pagan trembles at the rustling of a leaf. He feels the hound of heaven breathing down his neck. He feels crowded by holiness, even if it's only present in an imperfect, partially sanctified human vessel. And it turns out, with the Thessalonians, they were, as, as some may put it, walking the talk, living it, being doers of the word, not just, not just hearers of the word. And even so, Paul says, and more growth is needed because you don't want to get stagnant. And I don't know if, it's, if, a, if, if, if this is a good example, using the example of a ladder, because if you, if you climb up a ladder, you can also fall down a ladder. So I don't know if this is the, the best example to use, but if you think about climbing up a ladder, the higher you climb, the more progress you make, and, and could it be that maybe as, as the more you go on in Christ, the, the more you're transformed in the image of God. But again, sometimes in our lives, it's, you know, two steps forward, five steps back. Sometimes it's going up a couple rungs and, you know, slipping and falling. And God knows, and and lordship is in play. And, and, and here's the thing about Christ's lordship. Acknowledging that he is God over you. He is Yahweh. And it demands a turned will. Where you're in awe of God's holiness and you say, I love you because you first loved me. And I'm going to follow you. And I'm going to, I'm going to obey you. I'm going to say no to me. John Calvin once noted, holy men were struck and overwhelmed whenever they beheld the presence of God. And that people are never duly touched and impressed with a conviction of their insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. I think we can all admit 
that we are still learning what it really entails to call Jesus Lord. Thessalonians were. They weren't fully formed. They, they were in process. Now all of them, all the true believers that, that had been written to originally, they're all glorified. And we are in process. And I, I, I'm not going to assume that everyone who's listening to these words is a, is a believer in the Lord Jesus and is acknowledging the Lordship of Christ. But if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, you must acknowledge the Lordship of Christ. And if somehow you have run past that phrase and thought maybe it was just an insignificant title, may I remind you today, as I've been reminded so many times, and I need to be reminded again today, Lord means something. Lordship is, is kingship. Where you acknowledge his control over you, where you acknowledge your allegiance to him, and lordship signifies salvation, that you have been justified and you are being sanctified. First Corinthians says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Unless you've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, can you truly say Jesus is Lord? Jesus said, there are many who will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not? And they're going to rehearse all their good works and all the things they did that thought that gave them merit. And Jesus said, I'm going to say to, to some of them, I never knew you. Depart from me, I never knew you. So you only come to Christ on his mercy and merit. There's no merit that we bring to the table. There's nothing that we offer. You can only know Jesus as Lord if Jesus knows you as his subject. You can only know Jesus as Lord if, if Jesus has chosen you to be his. You can only know Jesus as Lord if you have surrendered your life to him, to him, the, the crucified, buried, risen, and returning Lord over all. You have surrendered your life to him by faith. That you believe the gospel message that you hear that Jesus took your punishment upon himself, the punishment your sins deserved, that your sins have separated you from God and have placed you under the wrath of God, the just and coming wrath of God, and that Jesus in his mercy and Jesus in his love, Yahweh, in the second person of the Trinity, in the person of Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, died for our sins in our place at the cross and paid the penalty that we deserved. The just died for the unjust. That he, God, made him who knew no sin to be sin in our, on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You can only know Jesus as Lord if you have surrendered your life to him by faith. Some of you need to do that today, right now, this very instant. Some of you are compelled to do that because God is at work in your life because you're hearing the gospel. 
But all who say, oh, I know Jesus as Lord. He's my Savior. He's my Lord. And, and I don't buy, by the way, because the Bible doesn't teach it, that you could have Jesus as, as your Savior and say, but I'll make him Lord another day in another season. The true Christian says, Jesus is my Savior, and he's my Lord, and I want to please him. And I know I don't always do that, but I want to. And my desire is Godward. My desire is to please him. Just like Paul's saying that you would please God more and more, excel still more and more. But the true Christian says, Jesus is my Lord. Now, I don't always act like it. Jesus is my Lord. I don't always obey him. Jesus is my Lord. And you continue in him. If you, if you know Jesus says, Lord, it means you've surrendered your life to him by faith and you keep surrendering your life by faith and, and you continue in him, in dependence, in, in, in obedience. Because following Jesus means something. It literally, it means something. We don't run past phrases like in the Lord Jesus. It, it means something. That there's an external transformation that is evidence of an internal regeneration and it's it's one thing to say oh i'm saved but the proof of your salvation will be revealed by the way you live part of acknowledging christ's lordship is something as simple as as accepting god's timing in your life that we would love to orchestrate our lives but we cannot and part of acknowledging christ's lordship is is like when a loved one dies and hurts and and the time is up when the days ordained for them before they were even had one day is, are up and part of acknowledging Christ's lordship is accepting that and and when someone moves away and and when a job is lost and when a when a relationship crumbles and so many things in life and whatever pain might happen and as Amy Carmichael wrote in acceptance lieth peace you say, I, Christ is my Lord, and he sits on a throne, and he reigns supreme, and I need him to transform my life, because I've made it a shambles. John Owen said, when the Holy Spirit sanctifies believers, he does a complete work in them. He puts into their minds, wills, and hearts a, a gracious, supernatural principle, which fills them with a holy desire to live to God. And the whole life of holiness lies in this. This is the new creation. Is there a desire in your heart to live pleasing to God? Then there's going to be some traction. There's hope. So many times people will say to me, I've just blown it so much. I've just, my life is just, is just, you know, crashed and burned. And there's no way that God could accept me, and I don't see how he could forgive me. And almost every time I say, you know what you just described? A Christian. Someone who knows that they come to Christ only on his mercy and his merit. We love Jesus supremely, and the sanctified, this is the first thing we see in this passage, a sanctified life starts with acknowledging Christ's lordship. You love Jesus by acknowledging his lordship. And move on with me to verse 2. Because there's more to a sanctified life, and, and this is inseparable, by the way. You can't separate these two out. Not only is a sanctified life 
started with acknowledging Christ as Lord, but a sanctified life starts with acknowledging Scripture's authority. And it's, it's found in, in that phrase, through the Lord Jesus. Verse 2 says, you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Now, he's talking about verbal instructions that were given. Now it's put in writing. You know, Paul is pinging their memory. We told you in person. Now it's codified in writing. It's in instructions. Sometimes we think, well, it's just a little instruction, you know, a couple instructions. We, we get an instruction manual, and many of us make a shambles of the project because we don't look at it, right? And if you really think about it, if it's, if it's well written, it really is, a, they should call it a command manual because, uh, you know, you're commanded to follow this if you want it to look the right way and work the right way. And the, the word for instructions here literally means commands, and, and they're binding. Now, you've heard me say a lot of things about the Bible over the years, that, that God's word is inspired and inerrant and infallible and perfect and eternal and authoritative and conscience-binding. You're like, what is conscience-binding? What does that even mean? You're tying up my conscience. You know, what, what? It means that you must obey it because God said it. And... It pushes against our will because Jesus says we're to not deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. Repudiate our own ideas many times and go with his. You know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. They're binding because they were given by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Instructions is not a light and fluffy and airy word. It is it is a military term used strictly of commands given by a superior authority to an inferior who must obey. So these instructions, they, they were given to the Thessalonians when the missionaries were visiting them, but they were given through the Lord Jesus. That means by his authority. That's why this phrase is so important. It's not just, oh, Jesus is Lord, but the Bible, you know, I'm just going to put it over on the side when I don't like it. It's Jesus is Lord, therefore the Bible has supreme authority over my life. And Christ stands behind every word. And, and it's through the Lord Jesus that it was given. It's by his authority. And so whoever rejects the word rejects God. And in, in, unless, in, lest you think, whoa, 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 wait, wait a minute, Mike. You're going a little far on this one. Could you please let your eyes drop down to verse 8? Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. The Holy Spirit who inspired Scripture. We're to love Scripture because God has given it to us and is inspired. We see in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is breathed out by God. Theopneustos. God, God used men's minds and words and lives to produce his word. And the writers were not inspired. Scripture was. When, when Scripture speaks, God speaks. It's inspired, and it's inerrant. It's 100% true in everything it affirms. It's never wrong. It contains no errors. It's completely correct. It doesn't teach anything untrue. It's infallible. It will never mislead you. It's without falsehood. It's incapable of error. It's without error, inerrant, because it is impossible for it to have errors. It's infallible, and it's sufficient. The scriptures are enough. They're the only, once for all, words of God that we need. 
in order to know the way of salvation. They make you wise for salvation and, and of obedience. They, they, they equip you for every good work. And they're clear. You can understand the Bible. Everything necessary for salvation is clear in Scripture. Some things are difficult to understand. But you can discern the basic message of a salvation and what it means to please God by reading the Bible. And it's authoritative. This is this phrase, through the Lord Jesus. That's what it means. The Bible is authoritative. All the words are God's words, and disobeying or not believing any part of Scripture means disobeying or not believing God. Because God's word is supreme over all other communication. So you must hear it. You must receive it. You must understand it. You must believe it. You must obey it. You must live it. You, you must do it. This is why Peter said, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He had just talked about scripture. This is why Jesus says, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. This is why Jesus prayed, sanctify them in the truth, Father. Your word is truth. This is why Paul told the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable because I declared to you the whole counsel of God. It's the word of God. This is why... Paul told the Romans, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, by the Spirit, through the Word of God. This is why he told the Colossians, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Dwell means make its abode in you. Bring it in so that it just permeates your life, that it oozes out of your life, that you would teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, because the Word of God is dwelling in you richly. The Word of the Sovereign that is binding on our conscience. And this gives us such security in Christ and conscience-binding confidence in God. So you live today, if you're a believer, you live today imperfect as you are because Jesus is perfect. We keep his commandments and do what pleases him, as John says. And what's intended in God's design is transformation, transformation of life. D.L. Moody once said, God did not give us the scriptures to increase our knowledge, but to change our lives. Andrew Murray said, take time to read his word in his presence so that you may know what he asks of you and what he promises you. Let the word create within you a holy atmosphere, a holy heavenly light in which your soul will be refreshed and strengthened for the work of daily life. Why would a Christian ignore the Bible? Usually it's because of a lack of delight in Christ, a lack of love for Christ. Well, the Lordship of Christ is not fixed in their hearts. If you acknowledge Jesus as Lord, then you acknowledge he is over you, and whatever he says goes, and it's grounded in the word, you're going to be committed to a scripture-saturated life and ministry where you, you faithfully proclaim the truth of God's word to your own heart, in your home, in the community, to the ends of the earth. Because faithfully proclaiming the truth of God's word completes what is lacking in our faith. George Mueller said, now what is food for the inner man? Not prayer, but the word of God. Not a simple reading of the word of God so that it only passes through our minds just as water runs through a pipe, but considering what we read, pondering over it, and applying it to our hearts. That can be mingled with our prayers, by the way. 
during the French Revolution, there were a lot of political prisoners that were herded into dungeons. There was this one prisoner that brought a Bible, and his cell was crammed with men who wanted to hear the Word of God. And once this dungeon was dark, and only once a day, for only a few moments, a shaft of light would come through a small window near the ceiling. And so the prisoners would lift the owner of the Bible up onto their shoulders and into the sunlight for those few moments, and he would study the scriptures. Then they would bring him down and say, tell us, friend, what you read while you were in the light. Best way to foster a love for Jesus and scripture is to be around Christian brothers and sisters who will remind you and help you that you would read the word. Best way to foster a love is to join a Bible-preaching church and love that church and, and don't play church, but understand what a church is and, and help each other. Know that a biblical church is led by a plurality of elders who preach the word faithfully and accurately and shepherd the flock lovingly, even willing to do church discipline. That they would administer the, the ordinances like the Lord's table and baptism consistently and equip the saints for works of service take the gospel to the ends of the earth, that you join the church and become a contributor, not a complainer, and keep showing up and keep loving everyone and keep serving and say, I'm going to go with truth, not lies. I'm going to go with peace, not anger. I'm going to go with love, not hate. If you acknowledge scripture's authority, it means that you will have many opportunities throughout your days to either do what it says or do what you think is better and what it says. You need to, to know what it says and then do what it says and choose to obey what it says even when it, when it hurts because you have surrendered your will. I have a friend who did that just this week. This story, this kind of example can be given over and over again. There are so many examples of the same kind of thing happening. But my friend had a relationship that had been broken, and this relationship, they weren't speaking, and they refused. He refused to, to speak to a loved one, and I guess last Sunday's sermon, the passage of Scripture convicted their heart, and they were reading a devotional booklet later on, and it was, had the same kind of message in it. And so I asked, what would make you go and make things right? And they said, because that's what the word of God tells us to do. See, that's, that's acknowledging scripture's authority. The, and, and we all know we're miserable when we don't. We're joyful when we do. You acknowledge Christ's lordship when you do what he says. You, you acknowledge scripture's authority when you do what it says. And obeying Christ is obeying scripture, and obeying scripture is obeying Christ. Because when you call Jesus Lord, you say, he's my sovereign. And I owe him alone absolute obedience. So I'm going to open up my Bible and see what it says, knowing that it, is, it has come through the Lord Jesus. Well, what might that look like? Well, it looks like you loving your husband or your wife. 
It looks like you opening up a Bible with your kids and praying with them and reading it. It looks like you being a really good employee or being a really good student. It looks like kids that are living under their parents' roof, they would obey and honor their parents. It looks, looks like you being a good neighbor. Because you love Jesus and you want to obey what he says in the word. It, it means that you have a heart made tender by constantly dwelling on Jesus and the word. A heart that knows it must trust and obey. In these verses, these two verses, we, we can't just run by these, these phrases. I do it a lot. It, 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 sometimes something is so often in scripture that it just, it kind of goes out of our mind. But in these two verses, Paul is advocating for a sanctified life that starts with acknowledging Jesus as Lord and Scripture as our authority, it, also known as loving Christ in Scripture. And Paul is zeroing in laser on this, what it means to be sanctified, what it means to be, to be holy. And he gets very practical, and he appeals to the relationship to Christ and his word. And what he's going to say next, you know, about sexual purity and about your true love for fellow believers and about how you live and how hard you work and all of that is going to challenge them deeply. It will challenge us deeply. But sanctified living is, is reflected in, in the desire to please God for his glory and others' good. And it's like this. It's like, so I, I came to know Christ in a point in time I was saved but I'm being saved, and I, and I will be saved. It's, I, I'm justified, I'm being sanctified, I will be glorified. The holy God is preparing me to dwell with him forever because the holy God is preparing his people to dwell with him forever. And progress is going to be seen. There, there will come a day that the holy God, who is preparing his people to dwell with him forever, he will be in the holy city with his, with his people forever, in the new heavens and the new earth and he's going to bring it about because we believe the scriptures. And so until that time, everyone who follows Jesus must please him and want to live a sanctified life and love Christ in scripture and acknowledge Christ's lordship and, and scripture's authority. If, if you do that, if you, if you do that, you have to be prepared for a couple things. First, for some persecution to come your way. That you would be rejected by people who don't agree. But secondly, you would also need to be prepared to be approved by God. And there will be some surprising fruit that will cause you to rejoice. There was a man named John Merritt who was one of the first African-American preachers in the United States and he was born in New York City, but his family moved to Charleston, North Carolina, South Carolina. Uh, in 1768, at age 13, he was converted by the preaching of George Whitfield. He heard the gospel and was saved. His family disowned him. At age 14, he left home with a Bible and a hymn book. He literally wandered in the wilderness, and he slept in trees to, uh, to escape wild beasts. And he was captured by a Cherokee hunter. 
And in his own words, here's what he said. This Cherokee asked me how I did live. I said, I was supported by the Lord. He asked me how I slept. I answered, the Lord provided. He inquired what preserved me from being devoured by wild beasts. I replied, the Lord Jesus kept me from them. The hunter was astonished and he says, you say the Lord Jesus Christ does this and does that and does everything for you. He must be a fine man. Where is he? And John replied, he is here, present. At the village he was brought back to, he was condemned to death. And the executioner told him, you're going to be stripped naked and laid down in a basket and sharp pegs are going to be stuck into your body and then we're going to set you on fire. And when, when we burned your body, we're going to throw you into the flames to finish your execution. In that moment, John began to pray. And his words moved the executioners and they took him to the chief. And in front of the chief, he opens his Bible to Isaiah 53. And he reads, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he preached the gospel. And the chief was saved and others was saved. And for two years he lived among the Cherokees preaching and making disciples. That's the outflow of the beloved becoming more beloved and their love for Christ in Scripture and people that reflects the holiness of God for his glory. Lord, we thank you that, as you said, you are my friends if you do what I say. We want to be your friends. We want to do what you say. We want to acknowledge your lordship appropriately and Scripture's authority over us and acknowledge that the love overflowing is your love that you shed abroad in our hearts, that melts our hearts, that leads us to do what is good and right and true and, and drives us to the word that makes us holy. Lord, our prayer is that your holiness would be reflected as we seek to please and serve you, imperfect as we are, as we love Christ and scripture and people for your glory and others' good. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.